0: morning, great to be with you today. Uh, easy to preach after probably my favorite song. As a very young Christian I heard that and I thought that's pretty much impossible to sing. But if you stick around for a while, you learn the words and then when your voice changes, if you become a Christian when you're in college, your voice gets deeper or whatever, then you can do the bass too. Fantastic song, Lord our Lord. Um, as I often do, I'm going to begin today with just a little um, little bit about the international teaching ministry uh, before we get into our, our text. Oh yeah, I'm going to be sharing particularly about the last the trip I got back from very recently, which was in uh, southern Africa. And I'm supposed to give you the greetings from uh, Botswana and also from, as you can see, South Africa. Johannesburg was the first uh, uh, port of call. Johannesburg is in the bottom of Africa. If you look at the screen, it's in South Africa, which is a country. Southern Africa is the region. I went with a neighbor friend of mine. Um, We had talked about doing this for years, and he joined me for the whole two-week tour. Uh, Jeff, he's a great guy. Um, Yes, we saw some animals, okay, because there's all kinds of wildlife there. I know we have wildlife, too. We have coyotes, and we have uh, uh, interesting things, but it's bigger down there. And a little bit more exciting and sometimes even a little dangerous. This is the house of Nelson Mandela. Uh, when I go somewhere, mainly I'm preaching, but I, I try to take a day to do something kind of connected with the city. Like if you're visiting Atlanta, you might want to go to a Braze game or you might want to visit World of Coke or something. Uh, here it was the house of Nelson Mandela, which was fantastic. It was a campus meeting. But the university invited a lot of others who showed up, and we had a great time. One thing that encouraged me, uh, a few few months before, I was in Turkey on an archeological tour, and and our guide was from South Africa, and he only lived about three hours from Johannesburg. So we were in contact, and he actually was the first one to greet me when I walked through the door. This guy would have spent probably five hours that day driving to and from, uh, just from his home in South Africa, to, uh, uh, to, to Johannesburg. Love spending time with teachers, with people who aspire to teach the Bible to people, and most of these are a lot younger than me. Uh, this is one brother who showed us around, uh, William, and another who's actually been asked to kind of take care of this uh, in South Africa, Paul Smith, great fellow. After that, Jeff and I flew to Botswana, and particularly the capital, Habarone. We didn't get to go outside, I mean, outside the capital. We went outside a lot. Uh, here's Raps. His name is really Rapula. Um, but everyone calls him Raps. And that's his wife, Katie. Great couple. This is the view from the top of our hotel. There you're looking at the church building. Um, I didn't know how to take the picture without the tree in it, so I just did it that way. But they actually have their own building, which is a great blessing and not, not as common as you would think um, in Africa. I spoke on the very unhealthy doctrine of health and wealth. And we also had a special session only for older Christians. We said, please, just people 10 to 20 years old, because we want to talk about what it's really like when you get down the road and talking particularly about hardship. Because Paul promised in Acts 14, we have to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. After Botswana, we went back to South Africa, and this time to Cape Town, which is at the very bottom. It's kind of an ugly place, as you can see. No one would really want to visit there apart from millions of tourists. No, it's amazing. And uh, we had a chance not just to, uh, to teach but to even have a meal uh, right on the water. And here's my friend Werner who takes care of us. An amazing place. I hope one day you'll go. And many of you have been there already. I spoke on the life of Jesus Christ. What can we know for sure about Jesus even if we don't believe in God? What are the things that uh, scholars, say historians, professors, what would they agree is true of him? For example, they would agree that he existed, but there's a lot more than that. And so it was kind of Christian evidences because um, it wasn't a sermon on Jesus, it was what we actually know about him, which is quite a bit. And then part two, um, after our break, uh, the continuation, and most people stayed for that, uh, it was again on the life of Jesus, but now we made it a little bit more challenging. Wonderful group down there in Cape Town, and they were excited because there'd been a There had been a wedding the night before, so the ranks were swollen uh, with extra people, and everyone was in a good mood, maybe like some of you going to the wedding today. And then next we went to Durban, which is on the Indian Ocean. Um, This is the preacher down there, Duncan Comrie. My wife and I actually were with him and his wife just two days ago, uh, because he's in the Atlanta area. They're coming up for the conference in Panama. So it's a great time of preaching and teaching, and fellowship, and not just rugby, uh, which the all-blacks of New Zealand lost. Uh, They were expected to win for sure. But we did even more important things, like the history of the church, and how to interpret the Bible. I just throw that in, because you guys know how big I am in sports. (laughs) Okay, so that's the sister church in Durban. Just a, a couple more things. Uh, last weekend, we had our meeting at the Athens Institute. This was the, as we call it, ASOM or, or AIM, and it was on counseling and psychology, and as promised, the, the videos are available to all of you. Grizel Foss and uh, Mary and Mike Shapiro did a fantastic job, three classes, one, a picture of a mentally healthy human, what does that look like, introduction to psychological disorders, and then... Maybe the most important of the three, self-care for ministry leaders. Whether you're a staff member or not, it would apply. And you can watch those if you want. You just have to go to the AIM website, or you can go to my website. Um, And if you don't get the newsletter, just text the word disciple to 66866. You can do it right now. The next AIM session, uh, a friend of mine, David Bersow, will be coming with his wife. They'll be staying with us for a few days. You may know him as the author of The Real Heretics, Will the real heretics, please stand up. But he's an expert on early church history, and I hope you'll be able to come to that on Saturday, December the first. Uh, the only last thing, uh, day after tomorrow, I'll be going to L.A. for a meeting of renewed.org. I know some of you are planning to go to the National Disciple Making Conference in October, and the day before that is the spe- is the official beginning of this new network among Restoration Movement churches. The Sheik uh, will be here very soon. Uh, Sheik Shabir Ali will be having our debate right in this room. Um, I believe he'll be standing right there. I believe I'll be standing right here. And I think Michelle Wright will be right here. And she is she's, uh, she's the one. She's the moderator. And I don't think we could have got a, a better... I mean, she's not that experienced in public speaking. You know, she's only been on the radio thousands and thousands of times. But I'm working with her. Okay, so... No, I, I, I'm really excited about that. And the goal is not just to have some of you come, it's for as many of you to come as possible with friends. This is ideal for teens, uh, for most middle school students for sure, but it's definitely for teens, uh, for all the campus, and please bring as many Muslims as possible. Because we don't, want the, we don't want the audience to be 90% Christian and then there are 10 Muslims sitting over there in the corner. That's not, that, that would not be ideal, all right? Uh, We want a balance, and that will create a very interesting fellowship dynamic, and also I think it'll make a better question-and-answer time. Well, as Sherwin promised, we're now in part two. We looked at Antioch last week as an example of a church in transition, because North River, the church that you're visiting today, is definitely in transition. We're going from big church to small church, smaller church, community church. Looks like we're practicing for it right now with just a fraction of the normal crowd here. I don't know quite why that is. Uh, Hopefully it was not um, a, a hurricane or something bad. And if you want to give a title to my message, it would be Be Flexible. And that will be explained soon enough. Antioch. Jeff took us to Antioch. Actually, there are many Antiochs in that ancient world. Not antioxidants, as it occurs to me, Antiochs lots of cities called Antioch or Alexandria or Caesarea. I mean, these are like dozens of them. It was this one, this Antioch, was the third city of the empire. So Antioch is right here. Can you see it? At the eastern Mediterranean. And right here, um, this is where the hurricane is blowing right now, amazingly. I mean, even today. Here is Rome, the capital of the empire. Rome, about a million people. Um, Antioch maybe a quarter million, maybe a little bit bigger. And the middle, the the second city would be Alexandria, Egypt. This is where all the grain came from. So the empire was fed by the grain from Egypt. One, two, three. Antioch was in transition. And we looked at uh, Acts 11 last week. We could look more at what happened in the following centuries, but this was a significant city in Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. But this is not a church history lesson today. Jerusalem, and we could pick other cities, Jerusalem right here, another city which is in many transitions. We see that that shift from Peter and the 12 being the guys to James, the brother of Jesus, being the leader in the church. I did a podcast on him just a few days ago. It was a big change. This is not James the apostle. Uh, this This is James, Jesus's brother. Uh, And there's a kind of transition that happens. And there's the post-James time. After James was executed by stoning, uh, there was a huge outroar among the Jews because they respected him so much. But it it changed the dynamics of the church once more. And then there, there was a shift really in the whole world from Jewish to Gentile. At the beginning of Christianity, most Christians were Jews. They were Jews and Christians. Uh, But it changed in a generation so that most Christians didn't have the Jewish background. They had the background of idolatry and polytheism. changed even more after 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, as as, uh, Jesus predicted. And there's a shift also from the kind of the center of gravity being in Jerusalem to Rome. I mean, you could say the center of gravity went from Jerusalem to Antioch they were ascending church, they're ascending church, but then it moves west to Rome, and that's important in church history. I I could mention another place. How about Ephesus, the fourth city of the empire? Transitions, oh my, from superstition and magic, black magic, to the true faith. Superstition from worshiping the mother goddess, who was popular all over Anatolia, Turkey, the mother goddess, or Kybula, to just having one god and no goddess though you could argue that they regressed um, by 431 at the Council of Ephesus. And then the apostolic grounding, unfortunately, gave way to false teaching. And Paul talks about that. And then they get healthy. And then Ignatius writes a letter to the Ephesians in the beginning of the second century. And uh, and looks like they're doing well, but they weren't before because Jesus said you lost your first love. So they kind of go up and down, up and down, kind of transitions in faith. When we're Focusing on Antioch, we've got to look at the beginning of the first missionary journey. And here we read that in this church, there were prophets and teachers. He names five, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius, and Manan. Five leaders, what do they do? They're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul. If you're, new, if you're new to Christianity, this is Paul the Apostle. Okay, this was his Jewish name, Shaul. Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And they go, they go to Cyprus and they go to many other places, the first missionary journey. So that comes from Antioch. What kinds of transitions? Well, let's, let's look at the way they handled change. I think there's a lot for us to learn here. Notice how the decision was made. It's not the five guys had a discussion and they thought, we should, we should probably send a planting to Cyprus, and then they had a prayer meeting and asked God to bless the plant. They didn't have a plan. They, they, they waited for God's guidance, and then, having accepted that, because they, they'd been fasting and praying and, and waiting, then they moved. Uh, In humanistic Christianity, in my life, it's much more I make a plan than I ask God to please get on board with my plan, bless my plan, instead of the plan coming out of the relationship with God. Now, that's easier said than done, but I think it's an important thing to remember. Look at the transition. They went from five main leaders down to three. And you wouldn't think, okay, if we're going to send out two, let's send out Lucius and Niger. Or we can send out uh, Mana and and, and Barnabas, maybe. But they send out Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. That'd be kind of weird. It'd be like, okay, we're doing a church plant here from uh, from North River. And uh, tomorrow, we've decided to send out Jeff Hickman and Tom Brown. They won't be with us anymore. They're going to be uh, planting churches on an evangelistic tour. You'd say, and they're not coming back. Uh, That would be interesting. They actually give their very best. They trusted in God. Uh, Jeff, uh, this is uh, sermon number two. Jeff did 1A last week, and 1B was midweek in this very room as we continue to talk about the anti-supernatural bias, uh, the humanism, the, the failure to see the hand of God and trust the Spirit. But they truly did. And you may notice that they didn't become overly dependent on any one person. They didn't say, well, if we send out Barnabas, the whole thing will collapse, He's like the most mature leader we had. Paul was still coming up. They weren't overly dependent on one person. Most churches in America, having embraced the American business model, have what they call a senior pastor. And it can be quite uh, traumatic if there's a change involving him or her, that senior pastor. But this is not the right dynamic. It's not the dynamic we see in Antioch. But these aren't even the transitions I want to talk about true there's a lot we could say sending a church generated the outward focus i thought of jerusalem as a sending church antioch you know when we went to london after a few years we started planting churches in the uk we started a church in nigeria we started one in africa Uh, we were working in australia in singapore lots of places and that was really exciting because to be part of something so big uh really helps us and i think north river understands that but the transition I want to focus on is one that you might not have predicted for a Sunday sermon. And we're going to be looking kind of at the middle and the end of Acts 15. And just to be very honest with you, at first I thought, well, Jeff got the good text last week. And he's kind of milked it and given some good stuff. But I thought it'd be nice to continue. But I don't want to just do a class. Is there something there to challenge our hearts? Something that will challenge my heart? And you'll see soon enough, uh, yes, there was. And I think all these years, I've been underestimating underestimating what was going on uh, in Acts 15. So this is what we read. It says, certain individuals, notice the discretion, it doesn't name them. (laughs) It was Frank and his wife and uh, John, and they came down and messed us up. No, it just says... Certain individuals came down from Judea. Look what they're teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty significant claim, that you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And what they're not, they're not talking to people who already were Jews. Obviously, we're talking to the rest of the world. Now, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to uh, go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with apostles and elders. Now this was considered to be not just significant, I'll tell you, this was the hot topic of the first century. This was the most contentious issue, the one that hurt the greatest number of people, that ate up the most hours in conferences, and they have a conference. It's a leadership conference in Jerusalem as a result of this teaching because they want unity on this, and they want to make sure that they've talked it through. What did it meant to be a Jew? This may help you a little bit. There were three major markers of Judaism, and many others as well. But one was circumcision, uh, mullah or mulot. Then there was keeping kosher. That is, you don't eat certain foods. Okay, that's the Kashrut law. And then there's Shabbat, there's the law about Not working one day a week, not working one year in seven, and then the jubilee year where property went back to the original tribe. Things that were very difficult, probably impossible to do today. But these were the three key markers, circumcision, Sabbath, and keeping kosher. Uh, The foods that the Gentiles ate were not the same as what the, the, the Jews ate. As you just saw there, pig and dog as two examples. Gentiles would eat almost anything, Uh, rat, fish, uh, goat and sheep. Some of it is kosher. I mean, some of it, it's exactly what the Jews ate. But we know what they ate, not only from literary sources, but when archaeologists dig in the ruins of ancient towns, they always find animal bones. And so you can tell who's been eating what. What would they find if they were digging under your home in 2,000 years? Would it be chicken bones (laughs) with the skin still attached? Okay, but what do we like? The Gentiles were also very big on blood and fat. Blood not necessarily drinking a glass of blood, though that was certainly done, but they liked their meat to have blood in it. I was reading about some, I was reading about the Huns last night, unrelated to the sermon, um, it was an ancient view. Of the Huns are the ones who invaded and, and, and brought down Rome in, in the 400s. But they were terrifying people, and they, they liked to drink blood and eat meat raw. Well, they would actually warm it up by putting it between their thighs for just a few seconds, and then they would eat the meat. Okay, we, we go, ugh. But blood and fat were big. Now, compared to the Jewish diet, which is kosher, and look at this, this jewel from Leviticus. Hmm, this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. And what does he say? You must not eat any fat or any blood. Now that has implications for our diet, doesn't it? Now obviously if you don't eat any fat, you're going to die after being very, very sick. The law of Moses wasn't saying no fat, like no carbs or no protein. It's talking about just lumps of fat. We're talking about pure fat, not not fatty food. You can have a dietary lesson another time. But blood and fat were part of the Gentile diet, and it was forbidden to the Jews. And one other thing I've gotta give you, this is background for our text, which we're about to look at. Um, The way the Gentiles had fellowship at table, table fellowship, the way they celebrated when they had dinner parties was something like this. You know, they would gather the meat, would have been sacrificed to a god. In fact, often they ate in the temple of the god. So you could eat in the temple of Aphrodite, or you could eat in a temple of whatever god it was. It could be uh, Ares, it could be just anybody. But you eat the meat, so it's not been blessed and you know give, lifted up to God. It's to to the, to the idol. The animal was typically strangled. I'm not saying that they strangled it at the table, but just keep this in mind, if you strangle an animal and then eat it, this is forbidden in Islam, it's forbidden in Judaism, because if you do that, then all the blood is still in the body. Uh, It's different if you cut it. And then after their meal in the pagan banquets, uh, they would have, of course, music and lots of women, and then it would be time for immorality either a temple prostitution, where you have sex with a prostitute who works for the temple, or just with other guests who are there. So that's the way non-Christian dinner parties went, right? So idolatry, and then there's drinking, especially strong alcohol, and that ends up in immorality. You wanna see something like that? We have a perfect example of one of those meals in Exodus 32 where the Jews act just like Gentiles, and they get on down and party. It's a serious picture. So keep that image in mind, and let's look what happens here. So I left you in Antioch, there was this discussion, uh, and the apostles and elders, with consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and send them, send them where? To Antioch. This is such a key city. That's where they're gonna begin. They sent, uh, with Paul and Barnabas, they sent Judas called uh, Silas, and uh, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers. And here's their letter. And I hope you can uh, just bear with me here. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we've decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth." So there are four men here. There's Paul and Barnabas. There's Judas and Silas. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And how did it seem good? Well, it was through the process of the council and letting different people share about what God was doing and weighing things. It seemed good to the Spirit and us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. Now, this is what's coming out. This is the bottom line in this letter to Antioch. First, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols." Oh, but it's just meat, and those gods are false anyway. But this was the position the early church took for centuries, not to eat idol meat. Abstain from blood, okay? Now, whether he's speaking of blood as a beverage or the blood in an animal that's been strangled, not cut, is hard to say but I would say it's, they're closely connected, and from fornication, because that's kind of the stage four of the typical non-Christian dinner party. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, for people from a Jewish background, the people who loved Leviticus, how would they have found this letter? Would they have said, wow, that's a hard thing to follow? They'd say, no, we, we do that anyway. Hurrah! How about if you weren't from a Jewish background? How would you feel if there was some necessity for God to say, okay, for the foreseeable future, no more chicken and no more barbecue for anyone in Georgia because it's causing your Yankee brothers to stumble? I mean, what would you probably say? Well, mind their own business. They can eat what they want. We'll eat what we want. I mean, you're interfering in my life. You're meddling. Just remember, they had this, this pattern. Now, I believe that the Christians, with, mo- with not too many exceptions, the Christians actually did repent of all this stuff. But we know when we read First Corinthians, some of them are still in this and even having prost- uh, sex with prostitutes. And that's why Paul has to write 1 Corinthians 6. I used to say, well, that, that, must, that must have been former members or... You know, people with real troubles, I'm afraid it's actually some of the members. They're saying, What's the big deal? It's just cultural. Hmm. Well, they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and when they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. The letter. When its members read it, they yawned, and many took naps and fell out third-story windows. You know what happened? They actually rejoiced. Because people knew, I mean, I it just occurs to me, one reason they would rejoice is certain people have been saying, you're not a full Christian until you're circumcised. And they're saying, hurrah, circumcision is not in the list. (laughs) Okay, good. I can abstain from blood, that's fine. They rejoiced, especially the men. Okay, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after they'd been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. So they report back. But Paul and Barnabas, because it was four guys, right? Two go back. They remain in Antioch, and there, with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of God. So the response to this letter is, well, let's just say it's, it's unifying. The brothers build trust. They build rapport. I know some of you are thinking, how come no sisters? Travel's dangerous. Uh, Jesus normally sent the, even the men out. He sent the men uh, two by two, not alone, okay? The four brothers build trust and rapport. The Antiochians are definitely encouraged. There's an increase in evangelism. So it's not just uh, Barnabas and Paul, as we read about, like in Acts 11. This uh, This is the membership of the church more broadly. Everyone's maturing. And all were strengthened. So great things came from this letter. And I knew that. But since the first lesson I ever taught on this letter, which I think was in 1992, not once have I ever applied it to my life. I just thought, that's a good chapter in case there's a theological squabble. It shows us what to do, how to come together, how to hear people out, the importance of prayer. I thought it's a good template. It's a procedure in case we ever have any issues. But surely not everyone felt good at the very beginning, because otherwise why would they even have to write the letter? Couldn't an upstanding member of the Antioch church say this, we understand our background, and we're not going back there, but meat is nothing, and all this about what you eat and drink, didn't Jesus say all foods are clean, you know, Mark 7, and didn't Peter see that sheet come down with everything? So we're just gonna cut out stage four we're not gonna do the ritual sex that's part of the meal. We'll just, but we still wanna do the first three. And I think that would have been my response had I lived in Antioch uh, in, at that time in the first century. And how do I know the, that would be my response? Because I know how difficult I can be and how manipulative and driven to get my rights and get my way. And I could I, actually, I think I would have been very sympathetic with the Gentiles probably I would have been a Gentile. Uh, in this case, I would have been like this Cape Buffalo. Uh, I'm not going anywhere, you know, unmoved, unbudged. How do we handle transition? It's going to become more personal in just a moment. Well, flexibility is what we need. Changes in groups, locations, and times uh, may not be to your liking. North River is in a transition into community groups. And it's not just that if there is a community group, you have to be in one. You choose one. There's another level of division, which is the family. So gone are the days where you can just sneak into church on Sunday, and everyone's going to assume that you're a member doing what you should be doing, because... We say, what, she's not in that group, she's not in our group, she's not with you, no. This is just a visitor who comes on Sunday. Hate to say it, but I think we have a large number of members like that at North River who just come on Sunday and rarely anything else. And they sneak in, uh, maybe hoping not to be noticed, but they've not invested their hearts in midweeks or family groups or anything else. And anyone with eyes, anyone who did first grade math can figure that out. Okay, because the numbers don't add up. Flexibility is what's needed. And this is what challenged me. So I thought, well, I kind of like being a free safety. I like floating around. So I've got to be in a community group. Yeah, but I have a special and unique role, surely. You send me out from North River, so I don't need to be in one of these. Yeah, I do. And not just to be a good example, but it's for me and not just a community group, but a family group. We've almost nailed this down. Vicky and I have almost got the plan, uh, but we're very encouraged, very excited about it. But at first, I felt, uh, I, I kinda knew in the back of my mind, well, I can't hide, I, I can't just be the guy who floats around the fellowship. What if someone asked me, what group are you in? I'll say, oh, I'm not in a group, I'm above all that, or I'm past all that, or that's just for young Christians. Because if we said that, not only would we be ignoring all the one another passages, but we would be really hurting our brother or sister in Christ. Because at first I feel, you know, meddled with. It's like, I don't don't want to be any more confined. My life's plenty busy already. Does this mean more meetings for me? (sighs) Being flexible. How flexible are we? We usually think we're more flexible than we really are. We, we think that. How flexible are we? We have some very easy guidelines in the North River Church. For example, midweek, 7.30, Sunday, 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock. Most Sundays, <clears throat> I'm sitting near the back. And so I know there is a huge number of people who waltz into church late and I don't mean a little late I'm talking 10 minutes late I'm talking 20 minutes late I'm talking 45 minutes late I'm talking people are dropping their kids off to the kids class 10 minutes before the kids class ends and you can say oh well I'm just not good with time or my I overslept or my you know it's my culture you know our culture is very free-flowing and flexible and really So if you're flexible, why can't you come when we're here? Why why do we have to start church with only half the number of people who are gonna show up? I would say, in fact, far from that being someone who's more spontaneous, that's that's someone who's not very flexible, who knows, yeah, this is the plan, and we're asked to be here, but we're not gonna do it, or we'll take our sweet time doing it. And that's a lack of flexibility. That's no better than, than lack of flexibility in your muscles as I contemplated bending over in the shower this morning. Not easy. Respect for plans and time. See, it's a kind of, it's not just a disrespect, obviously, um, but it's, it's a lack of flexibility. It's like, I've got my routine, and I'm gonna do my routine, and you're not gonna change me. Well, that gets very challenging when we are in small groups, and the big groups, and the whole church group. And I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, for me, this has been a little challenging because I fear a loss of freedom. I, I, I'd rather just keep things as they are, a little bit less defined. And if you know me, you know I'm not, I'm not the legalist who loves all kinds of rules. I'm, I like to shatter them, actually, and flout them. But... This is healthy, and this is right. And I think there's a parallel between what the Antiochians were being asked to do, what all the Gentiles were being asked to do, and what we're being asked to do by our elders and leaders. And I would love to think that the response will be uh, joy, encouragement, strengthening, and even more evangelism, and not dwindling numbers, fair-weather friends, ooh, you're asking for too much now. I can give you Sunday morning, but that's about all. What is the application? Well, the application is really simple. First, we need to get comfortable with group changes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask the person next to you, because I think we know what's going on. Secondly, we need to plug in. And when I say plug in, I mean plug in to a group. Don't leave things undefined. Don't be like that Cape Buffalo who's unbudging and unmoved like the people who, who actually don't give to the church, they don't give money, it doesn't matter um, how many illustrations and scriptures and how much weeping goes on on stage, they'll give nothing more than they ever do because they're not flexible. I challenge us to not be like that buffalo. And if you are, it's okay, just get up. And be a team player. And I'm right there with you and feel free to ask me in the fellowship any day you want, how's it going with you, Doug? How are you doing with this? We need to plug in and have an outward focus, even during transition, because you say, yeah, I I don't really want to reach out too much, because everything, let's wait till the dust settles, and yeah, but then there'll be another excuse and another excuse. And I think this is the application for us, to get comfortable with those group changes, to plug in and to have an outward focus even during and especially during the time of transition and our tendency, our temptation may well be to overthink it. It's not that complicated. And that's why Acts 15 was challenging to me because I realized that the Gentile Christians who would soon be in the majority of all Christians were being asked to voluntarily abstain from several things they felt they had every right to do, to not do things that were their preferences just for the sake of the Jewish brothers. And we're not even talking about causing people to stumble. We're simply talking about changes to make us healthy. And that's the flexibility we're talking about. So that like the springbok, right, the National Antelope of South Africa, we don't just be browsing, we're leaping, we're jumping, not just alone, but with others. And that kind of flexibility will come if our heart is orientated correctly towards the Word of God. It's time for communion. Therefore, my beloved, Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I'm in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? Food offered to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything? No, 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 no. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons, not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you invite us into a fellowship meal, a meal that represents your blood and your body a meal that unified the early Christians, Jews and Gentiles, that can unify us today across all the different divides and divisions in our society. Help us in these coming minutes to be unified, to remember you, to think of one another. And Lord, help us to appreciate the significance of your teaching about the Lord's Supper. So much is revealed at times like this. Lord, we ask that we be strengthened now and in the remaining minutes of this church service, obviously the rest of the week as well. Give us hearts attuned to Jesus Christ, who if anyone was flexible and bent down and ceded his rights, it was the Lord Jesus. We are inspired by him. Help us to imitate him as Paul imitated him as those in Antioch imitated him. We pray in your son. Amen.